You're listening to Morgan Bennion. This is The Cat. Hello and welcome to the Living with Parkinson's podcast, a three-part podcast detailing the effects of living with Parkinson's disease. In this episode today, I'll be going through the struggles of Parkinson's and we'll be speaking to Matt Eagles, who will be sharing his own experiences with Parkinson's disease. So let's get started. First of all, what is Parkinson's disease? Parkinson's disease, in short, is a condition that affects how the brain functions. We all have nerve cells in the part of the brain called the substantia nigra. The substantia nigra controls movement, and when someone has Parkinson's disease, the nerve cells in this area die or become impaired, which stops them from being able to produce an important chemical called dopamine, a neurotransmitter in the brain that is used to send messages between nerve cells by the nervous system. It has not been found why this happens, however most experts think that a combination of genetic and environmental factors are responsible. There is currently no cure for Parkinson's disease, however it can be treated to help reduce the main symptoms and maintain quality of life for as long as possible. Treatments for the condition include therapies to help with movement problems, medicines and sometimes brain surgery. There are over 40 different symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but the order in which some of these symptoms develop and the severity of them is different for everyone. There are three main symptoms associated with Parkinson's, and these are tremor, which in simpler terms is shaking, usually beginning in the hand or arm, slowness of movement, which makes everyday tasks more difficult, muscle stiffness, which can make it difficult to move around and make facial expressions, and it can also result in painful muscle cramps. To give us some more insight on a personal level, I spoke to Matt Eagles, who has suffered from Parkinson's since the age of seven, and he's here to tell us about his story. Yeah, my name's Matt Eagles. I have lived for 50 years with Parkinson's. Um, I'm a positivity activist, and I also work four days a week for a healthcare communication company representing the patient voice. So that's kind of me, really, in a, in a very, very brief nutshell. But if you want a bit more info, just ask away. I'm, I'm, I'm an open book. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, well, you were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of seven. So how was that for you to sort of get through? I bet it must have been a really hard time. Well, do you know what? All I really missed was playing with my friends. I mean, obviously, back in the mid-1970s, when it got, when I did get diagnosed, it didn't actually mean anything to me. I'd never heard of it. I didn't particularly want to know anything about it. As far as I was concerned, it was a real just a real inconvenience and and quite painful to be honest. Yeah, it was it was it was quite a distressing part of my life really because I spent a lot of time in hospital. Well, I actually tried to find that, try and prove that it wasn't Parkinson's, which sounds strange, but to, to diagnose somebody of that age with the disease, it's normally got an average onset age of like 50 or 60, is an incredibly brave decision by the consultant. So I think my parents really bore the brunt of the diagnosis itself because. I mean, nobody'd heard of anybody getting Parkinson's at that age before, so nobody knew there was there was no sort of books to read. There was no no sort of plan to follow. You just had to make it up as we went along, really. So, I mean, 
children are pretty resilient, to be honest, Morgan. And uh, I mean, yeah, I had some really sort of down times. Obviously, a lot of tears as a young child. But as we're growing up, it's kind of every day is still really um, different day to me. No one day is the same. Uh, but you just get on crack on, don't you? Really, you have a choice. You have to deal with it or you don't. Yeah, well, I was just about to mention then, when you mentioned about with, with it being diagnosed at such a young age, were doctors surprised about that with probably maybe yeah, before yeah. it was something big, else? Big time. They thought it was originally because my original symptoms were lack of balance. I had a frozen shoulder. My, my, to- my toes were clawing a lot. And I was walking on my tiptoes and wearing out my shoes a lot. And, of course, it was... It was really distressing for my parents, but it must have been quite distressing for the consultants as well, really, because to actually diagnose a young boy, as say, at my age, it, they were taking quite a, a big risk, particularly when they put me on medications, for which is L-dopa, which is like it's like a, it's like a pretty much a miracle. Uh, therapy for people with Parkinson's, which is still the most popular drug of choice, some 50 years later, but it was a big thing for the consultants. And I was actually um, their prized possession when it came to teaching purposes because I was always wheeled out and say, look at this boy, let's, you know, let's see what's wrong with him. But they thought it was either, uh, originally they thought it was a brain tumour or either that I had, or I had um, juvenile arthritis in my knees because my knees would just buckle, and I just couldn't stand up straight. So yeah, they they were disproved when I had uh, an MRI scan in '77, which that was done in Salford. That was one of the first MRIs. Well, beg your pardon. It was only the second MRI scanner that existed in the country at that time. Right. The only other one being in London. So I was I was I was given the best sort of NHS treatment they they possibly could give me to try and decide what my strange symptoms were, but now it's um, it was only really when they decided it they that when my consultant sort of said, Try some L dope, here's fifty P which is pretty cool because 50p back then, was, I know it doesn't sound anything now, but it was quite a lot of money back then. Yeah. I could buy loads of sweets with it, so I was quite happy to take the medication for 50p. I'm a bit of a maverick like that. Just give me some, not, not that I'm corrupt or anything, but <laughs> if it comes to taking meds, anybody that is prepared to give me some money, I'm uh, I'm quite happy to uh, oblige them. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, just tell me a little bit about the struggles you've had with Parkinson's that some people may not see because sometimes people are unaware of the other effects that Parkinson's can have on people yeah. on the um, on the inside. This this is so important, Morgan. I mean, people just often see Parkinson's as just a shaky hand, and there's so much more than that. There's over forty different symptoms, but they do affect every bodily function that you can imagine and every daily task. Um, things that pe- most people 
take for granted, you know, even like washing, dressing, cooking, you know, things everyday people don't even have to think about. Typing on the computer, speaking on a phone, reading a book, everything that for the vast majority of people are automatic can be problematic for people with Parkinson's. Even, I mean, people have problems getting to the bathroom, they have problems with sleep, they have problems with apathy, they have problems with their emotions in general, as well as the, the motor symptoms, which would be um, no, not the loss of balance, the walking, the shaking, the stiffness. But it affects your heart as well. It affects you. Basically, it affects every single bodily function in your, in your body. And people don't realise this. So even, even breathing. Because, you know, you die, when you breathe in, your, your diaphragm comes up. Well, that's affected as well because the messages don't... Your muscles kind of go into like a spasm, if you like. So none of the muscles work properly. So sometimes when you try and take a deep breath in, you can't because the muscles are still spasming. So your heart gets, starts racing. And right. then you might get a panic attack. I mean, I've been through all this over my, over my journey with Parkinson's. But I've learned how to deal with it and learned how to live with it on an everyday basis. But it doesn't... You know, it's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of psychological things at hard as well. I actually tweeted about something the other day. Imagine, you know, everybody likes to sort of plan stuff or everybody's got stuff to do in their lives. But when you have Parkinson's, you can plan to do it. But sometimes but when the time comes to actually do that thing, either your symptoms prevent you from doing it or they prevent you from doing it to the best of your ability. If that doesn't reflect how you want it to be, that's really, really frustrating or failing that. If you've like psyched yourself up to do this task, for example, and you, you end up a few minutes before you're supposed to be thinking you can't do it, it's incredibly frustrating. And that task, it's like, really, it's like, say, if you've planned to hoover the house, yeah? Says, right, I'm going to hoover the house this afternoon. And you, you rev yourself up to do it. And then at the last minute, you can't do it. It's really, really frustrating, not, frustrating not only for you, but for the person who you live with or whatever else who you promised to do it for. Because that task is still hanging over you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like still there. It hasn't been done. And yet, you plan, you plan to do it. So Parkinson's is desperately frustrating as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why I don't take myself too seriously. You know what I mean? Because if I took every, every sort of knock, every, everything that happens to me on a daily basis with Parkinson's, seriously, I'd, I'd, be, a, I'd be an absolute wreck. I'd be, I really would be. So, yeah, it's desperately frustrating. And it's trying to get the awareness out there because some of these things are really embarrassing, you know, like... I mean, even you might you might sort of try and make a cup of coffee, you'll spill the sugar, you'll spill the milk, and then you'll knock your cup over, or you'll spill it down yourself and think, bloody hell, you know, why has this happened to me? Or what, what, why have I done all these things? But say, if you take them seriously... You'd get so frustrated, it'd be untrue, but you just can't afford to do that. 
Well, you, you've got a device that works almost as a brain pacemaker. It is, yeah, the... that's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. That has saved my life. I wouldn't, it's probably a little bit dramatic to say it saved my life, but it certainly helped me turn my life around. Before I had it, called deep brain stimulation, by the way, and it's quite a remarkable um, surgery. It's and it, but it is essentially a brain pacemaker. Um, you have two electrodes uh, put put into your brain. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? But they, they at the time I had it done, which is seventeen years ago, you had to be awake while they drilled. They well, first of all they 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 screw a, a wireframe to your head, so you can't move your head. And they screw that into your skull so you can't move. Then you have a uh, an MRI scan on your brain so they pinpoint exactly where the electrodes are going to go. Then, well, essentially, what they're supposed to do while you're still awake is they drill two pieces of your skull away and then put the probes in, put the electrodes in. When they get to the right place, they can see it on, on all sorts of scans or they can tell by your movement or lack of it if it's in the right I mean it's it sounds and I've actually witnessed the operation seen it on video and it looks pretty grim but the results are quite incredible just by mixing up the and disrupting the electrical circuits in the brain it means they can they, for me but anyway it help, helps me move helps me function on a daily basis and if they don't, and if I hadn't, if they didn't get it right, I wouldn't be able to move at all, pretty much. Right. Or speaking, it, the, the effect is that dramatic. But also, I can eat now. I can eat at, at the times I want to. I can sleep at the times I want to. Both of which are a real problem to me. But this is going to sound really strange. I could even, uh, you know, something again, something that you'd, everybody else takes for granted. Even getting up at night and going for a week isn't a problem for me now. It used to be for years and years. I used to have to sort of fall off my bed and roll off my bed onto the floor and we're in a pot. I kid you not. God, yeah. Now I don't. And it, it, I mean, that's a big, it's a pride and a dignity point of view. I mean, that's huge. It's a huge thing. So, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. And 17 years ago, and I'm still going strong. Yeah, well, brilliant. Ish, ish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so tell me what you do on a typical day at work, like on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in a really lucky position in that I work for a healthcare communications company based out of Manchester, but we also have offices in London and New York. Um I work for them three days a week as head of their patient voice. Basically, we're a marketing and communications agency for Big Pharma, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, those kind of companies. And we do market, we market brands for them. But for me, I make sure the patient voice is heard. I make sure the patients get a say in the communication act, communications that are being made and the... Um, because it might be patient, it might be patient facing. Um, do you know what I mean? It might be something that is specifically 
a product specifically to market to the patients, in which case I'll make sure it's the tone of voice is right. It's, um, you know, the, and I'll go, th- I'll go, I'll be there from the start to the finish. So co-creating ideas and learning from what we're doing along the way as well, because these things don't, they aren't sort of done overnight. But also, um, and I, I represent all sort of patient areas, anything from cardiology to cardiology, dermatology, all allergies pretty much I represent. <laughs> including, obviously including neurology and Parkinson's and all that kind of like that. They're obviously my my favourite, but I represent all different haemophilia as well and all sorts of different areas. Pretty much all patients want is to be able to live their best lives. And that's the common theme, bit, you know, between us all. So I really enjoy it. I get to, um, I get to speak in lots, lots of different conferences. I also get to judge at awards as well, which is fantastic fun. Hard work, but you can get to see what amazing work's been going on in the industry. At the moment, it's, honestly, it's really good. Really high standard. So picture the scene. You see a man stumbling down the street. You notice his legs are unsteady. His friends struggle to hold him up. Then you think to yourself, it's only one in the afternoon. You approach with caution. You give him a wide berth. Then, suddenly, you make eye contact. And he says, I'm not drunk, I've got Parkinson's. At Parky Live, we're shaking off parky prejudice and revealing the wonderful people underneath. For more light-hearted true stories like Matt's, head over to parkylife.com for the brighter side of Parkinson's. National Find a Rainbow Day, National Ferret Day, National Sellotape Day, National Kiss a Ginger Day, National Earmuff Day. There's a day for everything nowadays. But living with Parkinson's every day makes World Parkinson's Day the most meaningful to me. Well, that and uh, National Cocktail Day. I've got to give these shaky hands something positive to do. Visit parkylife.com and celebrate the brighter side of Parkinson's. So what kind of medication would you take if there is any on a daily basis? Oh, for, for Parkinson's, yeah. Um, I take Madapal, which is an L-dopa-based therapy, and I've been on that for over 30 years now. Um, and that ten, I take five half tablets a day alongside my brain stem. So if you bear in mind, before my, my surgery 17 years ago, I was on up to 24 tablets a day. Right. And now I'm on like like four, four or five half, five more, five, probably about, in total tablets, probably two and a half, three tablets a day. So it's a huge sort of, a huge win as far as I'm concerned in terms of sort of getting an even keel during the day and not having kids keep t- taking tablets all the time. Because I was going, it's a, the, the deep brain stimulation, Morgan, is re- I can't express how, what a difference it's made in my life because before I had my surgery, I was going from sort of being very dyskinetic, which has involuntary, I mean, basically means being, you sort of win, Melia. 
I don't know whether you've ever seen anybody on crack cocaine where their mouth goes and they twitch and everything else, but it's like it's the same effect because it's. But it, you obviously don't get a high, but it's about ten times worse. It's horrendous. So it's going from that to being unable to move and unable to walk. So they're like real peaks and troughs, and there's very little in between. But however, now since my surgery. There's only little the the, the the great contrasts in state in my own bodily state and nothing like they used to be. So it's a real relief really. And uh I say I'm actually an ambassador for the both manufacturers of the equipment that I have in my brain. And I'm very proud to represent them as well. In fact I've got a meeting with one of them later on this afternoon. Oh, right. <laughs> Quite funny, really. So it's obviously been a success for me. But yeah, I really, I'm I'm living life at the moment. I think hard work, but I love it. Yeah, brilliant. Well, you were shortlisted for Positive Role Model Award at the National Diversity Awards in 2020. How was that for you to be nominated for such an award like that? Oh, do you know what? I was absolutely over the moon. It was a good year for me, 2020, because I also won the. Uh, Public Engagement of Neuroscience Award from the British uh, Neuroscience Association, which is a really prestigious award. But the yeah. National Diversity Award, I'm so proud of that. I mean, we got to, me and my wife went, got to go to an awards dinner at the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool. And there, it was just, uh, but Beth Morgan, there are some amazingly, amazingly talented and amazingly uh, it's amazing people out there just doing their thing every day and they don't get any recognition for it. And I don't necessarily think they they really sort of caught recognition, but it's such it was such a celebration of the good of in life. It was amazing. But I've actually I've actually gone on from that. I'm now a judge at the Burberry British Diversity Awards. So I've done that for the last couple of years. And um that's that. I mean, they're similar awards, but like, they just celebrate your diversity in in in, in the workplace, and they're they're brilliant. I went to their awards at, in the Grosvenor House Hotel in Park Lane in the, uh, last month. Stunning, stunning! It was absolutely stunning. Yeah, it sounds brilliant. Yeah, um, well, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with um, Mary Dendy and the story with that, because me and Mary Dendy go back. A long, long time. Uh, maybe, I don't know, 15, 16, yeah, probably about 15 years, I guess. Uh, I've been with possibly longer, but I was involved in the East Cheshire, the old East Cheshire League, um, with with a couple of other teams. I, I originally started with a team called Bollington Athletic, and they were really, really successful. But for whatever reason, and I don't think we're popular with the FA because... Our ground wasn't quite to scratch, but we were a great footballing side. But we anyway, we ended up we had two teams, one in East Cheshire, one in the Mid Cheshire. We ended up folding, and that was terrible. I then went to the Puss in Boots, which again, we were a very good side and we won a lot of things. But I, it's funny now looking back. I always used to hate going to Mary Dendy. <laughs> There's a player from Mary Dendy called Paul Crunch, or 
who I know you know. Yeah. Cronie was the dirtiest player. One of the dirtiest players I've ever come across. And he used to get really, really cross when we... So I used to report on the games from the Maxfield Express and photograph them as well. And Cronie always used to get in... He was, he's one of these... He's a bit of a Roy Keane player. <laughs> very dirty off the ball. And referees very rarely saw what he got up to. But, but because I was photographing the games a lot of the time, I could see... I'd watch him in direct out games and I could see some of the shenanigans he was getting up to. And I was, it always amazed me that he actually very rarely... He was a really committed player. And he very, very rarely got booked. But he was always involved in something off the ball. But um, anyway, I used to meet some of the Dendy lads in my in the Puss and Boots, actually, because they lived around the corner from me. And um, Gary, who was the president, he lived around the corner as well. And we used to chat. And eventually, when the Puss and Boots were no more, I became the deputy secretary, and it's such a well-organised club, I tell you. And it's got better and better and better. But they, I mean, I used to take pictures. I used to take hundreds of pictures at every game, and I used to do match reports after every game. And this is really before sort of Instagram, and this is before Twitter, and this. You know, if it had been if it had been that time, we could we would we, I suspect we would our profile would have been a lot higher than it is now. But but I the, the lads who there were so committed, Shep, Mutley, Kerbo, Crony, all the people that were involved with the club were just brilliant. And I can I kind of. You know how you fall in love with a club just simply because of what they did. I mean, we weren't particularly successful, but we were we were totally committed to, and totally committed to each other as a, as a team. And I just loved loved the whole camaraderie. And obviously, Cronie and it's been we've become like a bit of a we are a bit of a family really. Um, Cronie came to Cronie and Kerber and a few developers came to my our wedding. I've been to Cronie's wedding, been to loads of other players' weddings. You know, it's such a family atmosphere. And I mean, I, I, I was really sad to call it a day, yeah. As 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 the day to day club secretary last season, but I, obviously I'm super busy with work as well. So. I think it's time that some of the younger lads sort of stepped up. Like, like yourself, you and say, club, great atmosphere. Yeah. Um, got two teams now. We're chartered standards club. All credit to the hard work of the backroom boys. And, of course, we got lads that want to play every week. Because at the end of the day, that's all we're there to do. We're there to facilitate the lads who want to play football. And that, I think we do it pretty well. Yeah, well, I mean, I've really enjoyed it since I joined. I probably joined like last January now. And a lot of fundraising goes into it as well, doesn't it? So we've got the Legends yeah. Day coming up, and uh, that's raising money for Parkinson's UK. So um, just you know tell me what? a little that bit about that. That makes me so proud, you know. Um, and we've we've raised money for the Cure Parkinson's Trust as well, or Cure Parkinson's are now known. 
And I was able to present that to Mike Tyndall himself. Right. You know, the, uh, he's married to the Queen's granddaughter, Zara Tyndall. Yeah, yeah. And I was able to present that to him at his Celebrity Golf Day in 2018. And it's, it really, I mean, they do so much, so much good for the, sort of the community as well. We always look after the changing rooms, look after the pitch. And that is down predominantly, I would say to you lads, particularly, and I'm going to shout him out, Paul Cronshaw, what an absolute legend. He is He is Mr. Mary Dandy, without <laughs> a question. And although he doesn't play, he's not play. I don't think he's played now, or he's too busy, busy looking after his family, but um, he has put his heart and soul into this club, and I... I've got nothing but admiration and respect for Cronny. Yeah, no, I'm the same. He does so much for the club. But he'll, he, I think if, if the younger lads, look, obviously like yourself, look up to him, see, see where you can go. Because I mean, we're a well-financed club now. We make plenty. We, you know, we make enough to, have, to look at to have, where the decent kit to have the to have all the, the ball match balls we need and have. And it's all down to Cronny. This is his organisational skills. I mean, I used to do the uh, all the secretariat signing on players and doing fines and speaking with the other teams, speaking with referees, which is... And I used to do a PR job as well. But, uh, no, Cronny, if without, without us as a team, I mean, it, it just goes to show worth it. And nearly 40 years old, I think that, I think how old we are as a club, nearly 40 years old as a club, which is pretty good for a grassroots club. Yeah, well, I think we've just about covered everything there. So um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. I hope, I hope I've given you some, some decent content to, to for your show anyway. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Morgan. So a big thank you there to Matt Eagles, who shared his story with Parkinson's and gave us some information on it as well. I hope you've found this episode helpful and if you'd like to find more information on Parkinson's, there are many reliable websites available such as the NHS website and Parkinson's UK. You can also check out www.parkylife.com which shows the brighter side of Parkinson's disease, a movement set up by Matt himself. Don't forget this is a three-part podcast with each episode released weekly so stay tuned for episode two next Saturday where I'll be focusing on the indirect effects Parkinson's can have on people not suffering with a disease. I'll be speaking to Mary Lou Evans whose husband has suffered with Parkinson's disease for eight years. Here's a little teaser for next week's episode. The first reaction obviously is you no, know, I've got a very, very fit husband, a mountain walker um, and you know he can't possibly have degenerative disease like this um, so you go through a little bit of a denial and then you sit back and you think what actually is it then there's a knock-on effect on him so I need an outlet and that's where the support group works right, because okay. you can go in and, and all I got to do is look at another partner who hasn't got the Parkinson's and just look at them and go like that sort of put my fists up and just sort of look raise my eyes and think oh I'm having a bad day and all they've got to do is smile at me and I know that they understand exactly what I'm going through and sometimes right. that's all you need, yeah. just to know you're not on your own. So that's what will be coming up next week. But now it's time for me to thank you for listening to the first episode of Living With Parkinson's. Goodbye. This is The Cat. This is the only local radio station for crew in Nantwich.